You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. Remember to subscribe to Event Horizon so you never miss an episode. Isaac Arthur, welcome back to the program. John, so good to be on again. Thanks for having me. It has been nearly, well, I think last December, something like that. So almost a year. Has it been that long? It's been a, it's been a long year. <laughs> it, it has been a long year. I, I think we've talked. Well, we've talked a number of times. Yeah. Now, but um, here we are back into the Halloween season, which is my particular favorite season. It's always a fun one. I like catching up on old horror movies and see if they made anything decent since then. So what? What is your favorite horror movie? And it doesn't have to be hard science fiction horror. Uh, well, I, I say my favorite horror horror book would be uh, Robert Matheson's I Am Legend, but they've never made a good movie adaptation of that. You know, the zombie subgenre just kind of flows from that, but it's never really part of that book quite right. I'm trying to think, what would be the best horror movie? Oh, Event Horizon. That's a good one for this show, too, yeah. Event Horizon. Well, I love <laughs> Event Horizon. Um where where we're going, we don't need eyes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a prequel to the Warhammer Forty Thousand setting. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, it was one of my favorites. I have others though that I really enjoyed, and I'd have to extend this to television as well. The remake from the early two thousands of Battlestar Galactica, yeah, was yep. particularly good for me. But as far the as the first couple of seasons, anyway, that's that's a yeah, the first got, got a little weird after that. But <laughs> I liked the idea though of how there weren't any aliens other than Alpha. Yep. Yeah, I always do tend to like the ones where there's not too many aliens close because in anything space opera, you start having to kind of get the explanation for why why we are even on the stage and not just like some footnote or or like either we never existed in the first place because they lost us colonized our planet or we've been living on their their garden park and they're like, hey, by you know, you're a real civilization now you have to pay rent. No, there's no stars left for you to colonize. Yeah. And if you really want the spookiest stories, keep your aliens obscure. And that was Arthur Clarke. He was very right on that one, too. And you see that with, like, well, with Battlestar Galactica, but, like, Mass Effect. The, the, every time they gave us more information about the, the Reapers, it, it made them less interesting. Same for, uh, like, the Ancients or the Shadows from Babylon 5 or so many of those other, you know. The, the, the key of the cosmic horror subgenre and, and Lovecraftian lore is don't, don't show the evil dark gods or aliens. Just show their effect on the humans who interacted with them. And David Bowman. I mean, we only ever, in 2001 and 2010, the movies, we only ever saw a message directly from them. Don't don't land on Europa, but also just through David Bowman, and it was incomprehensible. And that's a, you, you spend more time thinking about filling the blanks yourself. Alistair, I understood that a lot. There's very few interactions with the evil aliens in that series, which you instead see is, is the humans who have been uh, touching you with them secondhand, and then when it drives people to you, or, or with a veterize in the, uh, oh God, I can't remember the actual name of the doctor in it but it was played by sam um sam, sam neil, neil? Yeah. yeah sam neil and uh it does a great job of that role and just you don't see the bad aliens there you see what what the humans who have actually met them so to speak see and it's wow it's 10 times scarier you can actually get a little bit closer with it in horror but it's still a good idea to have that shadowy figure and a good example there would be the shining from stephen king where you never find out who the manager of the hotel is who is the person pulling the ghost's strings and ultimately pulling Jack's strings? So this is this this mystery and hidden stuff is the best. But my question for you is actually about something that has no real hard science fiction basis, though you can think of ideas about molecular nanotechnology and things like that. The zombie apocalypse. So I will be the third person to go on purpose and turn to a zombie and exit stage left simply because I wouldn't want to live in that world. How about you? Would you try to maraud and <laughs> try to survive? Would you be Would you be making a nail bat and things like that to survive the zombie apocalypse? The Mad Max slash Walking Dead kind of world is is got a kind of appeal left behind, kind of left for dead. It's got some kind of appeal for, like, I'd love to run around there with a chainsaw and a shotgun and, you know, whatever. But uh, at the same time, no. Good God, no. Because the thing is, if it's gone down for reasons like that, then civilization isn't rebuilding. It, it, it turns out you are indeed in one of those universes where the cosmic core subgenre is right. Cthulhu reigns, and, and you don't want to be on that planet any longer than you have to. Check out while you can. You know? <laughs> so, but I, I think about that the nature of something like a zombie apocalypse we all think about that as an existential dread kind of issue 
it's not exactly that's realistic. It's more the idea that a relatively mindless but overwhelming force is going to wreck the existing civilization, and because that real challenge of could I survive inside this? And you know, I think it it becomes the red team that we all mentally go against for trying to decide how prepared we are for you know crisis. A disaster. In that regard, it's kind of like when the CDC released their advice for how to survive a zombie apocalypse as a basic emergency preparedness kind of guidebook. But no, I mean, an actual war like that, almost no place that has fiction I'd like is a place I'd ever want to live in. Utopia is a place I'd love to live in, but it doesn't make for good fiction. <laughs> it doesn't until it turns utopian dystopian. Yeah. In other words, if it's a, if it's, if it's a really nice living hell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that always depends on your perspective and viewpoints. So if you if you're on the cyberpunk genre place where the evil corporate empires are ruling everything, it's like, well, it's actually pretty nice if you're you know one of the board members on those. So. <laughs> Otherwise, no, yeah, check on out before they start eating the soylent green, which is just not good for your health. <laughs> that was hinted at in the Matrix, of course, where you can actually make a world that's yep. too good and nobody's happy. I in for storylines, and I, you know, I really find a boring life pretty interesting, but then I think about whenever I've been in boring life phases, I've always ended up finding additional things to do anyway. In some ways, the channel that I started was because of that. It was I, I was missing the uh, the challenge and exhilaration of getting new stuff with science and sci-fi, but boring is good. I love boring. It was, it was my thing when I got back from Iraq was, I'm going to try to lead as boring life as I possibly can, because excitement is not good. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of see it like this, is that boredom is an opportunity because I, I don't actually get bored because I have plenty of stuff to occupy myself and just go uh, catch up on my reading list, which is I will never, I do not have enough years left, even if I live to be 100, to cover my reading not list. Not a chance, yeah. And add that. It gets added to you faster than I can. It does, and, and then add that with the scientific papers and everything else that I'm interested in. Uh, that, yeah, I, I don't get bored. But at the same time, it's hard to drag a telescope out and look at the night sky during a zombie apocalypse. You are going to get bit. So, well, got to get a nice fence. I think the the aspect of this is when you see like the 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 uh, you know camera with the new one is it's got Edward James almost in it, but uh, the you know, when you have those ones, it's it's always based on the idea that the military somehow got snookered or is completely incompetent, because when you're limited to The Walking Dead and like it's nice to have a shotgun or a pistol, and nobody really has a machine gun, and then when people forget like well, a machine gun's not an actual weapon in the military, a tank is, and you know the assault rifle is your backup weapon. Like, when I was in the service, I had an assault rifle. Or actual weapon was either the Humvee, the big machine gun on that, or the gigantic six-meter-long artillery gun that, well, you know, that my squad had. <laughs> and in situations like that, I was like, no, that's that's not going to be a contest. You know, it doesn't matter. It's like, well, we're not a bullets. We kill all these people. No, we have a lot of bullets. We have a lot of bullets that are hard to make. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, that's kind of the aspect of that is you never really see much organization there, and it's... It would spoil the genre if you had it, and so I think that's one of the positive side of things like Resident Evil too. Is you get too much in-depth look at what uh, the movie is not the the the, the uh, video game. You get too much in-depth look at what's going on, and that's when it starts breaking down. And that's kind of like the story of sci-fi for a lot of us. You like hard sci-fi is like I don't mind. I don't expect my sci-fi to be all that hard for just enjoying it. I enjoy a good Marvel movie, but don't do anything that makes me think about the problems. Like, you know, I like Thanos as a character of the films. Don't don't want to think about why what he's planning is just stupid. <laughs> don't think about the plot too much. And that's kind of the same for the zombie films. And because it's a zombie-based thing, it's, it's kind of like hanging a lantern on it. You don't really expect that much. You, you, you're checking in knowing, say for the comic book movie, that this is not going to be focused on scientific realism. And so you can just check out and enjoy it for what it is. Suspension of disbelief is possible until you start to learn how the sausage is made. Right. And once you know how the sausage is made, yeah. <laughs> then it's done. Then it's done. The mystery is finished. And the mystery is a great part of the draw within fiction is that, and I, I always, with what I write, I always try to preserve that. I don't tell anything. I just try to lift everything into the sublime and incomprehensible as best I can. I'm not always successful, but... That's what I try. And that's one of the, the big problems is don't tell how the sausage is made because then you're going to throw your own story into the gutter. And that's exactly what I was and people, In spite of the fact that I've never published a piece of fiction in my entire life, people ask for like writing advice and there's, well, how to get more realism. I say, well, realism's good when, when it's appropriate. But don't try to, you know, don't, don't 
kill plots or background or setting because it's scientifically real. Make sure whatever bits you're going into. Like, the key of sci-fi is you have at least one area of, of knowledge that you're delving into with people, you know. And so it could be a psychological thriller, you know, delving into psychology. It could be, like, blindsight where they get into how the mind's built and, and what sentience means. It just lies that bits that you're actually doing, those need to be good science where you can. And the rest of it, don't don't go into it at all. Don't don't trickle people to think rationally about the background of the story. That's that's because you're never going to create anything that's sufficiently realistic anyway. It is a fictional universe being made by one person. Even a Brandon Sanderson's not going to be able to do that level of depth. I wonder if you could get away with it though, and because sometimes what you can do in, in hard sci-fi is write nuts and bolts and show people this has been done, where you really get into the physics and actual science of it, which doesn't reveal anything about your plot or your your villain or anything like that, except it might be possible, and you may differ on this, if your villain were an AI, there you might be able to tell a bit more. That's actually an interesting example, is um, the, the effect of generative AI in these things is that it makes it a lot easier for a writer to, you know, put together a, a nice visual that's very suited to what they want, or to write up some, you know, for a lot of the things, you don't need 5,000 entries on planets in your glossary of what you made for your million word empire, but you can have that AI writing bits of it up from your scrap and notes, for instance. But one of the things I've always loved the most about big settings, you know, your Star Wars, you know, Legends, or your 40K, or Star Trek, or any other ones, is there's so many people who contributed over the years that it has an extra layer of realism from the depth of, of information available, even that a lot of it's contradictory in some cases, because then it starts seeming a little bit more real in the fact that it's got gaping holes where it doesn't mesh together well, kind of like the real world sometimes feels. But I think that is one of the things I love about fiction in the modern setting is that it does allow people to interact more with their audience. And I think we'll see with a lot of writers or creators going forward that they'll have the ability to incorporate their more active audience into helping to forge the backgroundscapes, that extra world, that short story that's attached that just goes into it. And, uh, and kind of going back to the boredom concept of would you ever get bored? And we had this in today's episode was on life extension. I said, well, what if, you know, what would you, you get bored of life if you just kept living a long time? You say, well, no, because I'm not bored of life now. You know, to me, boredom is what happens in a waiting room when I can't get signal on my phone. That, that's, that's when that happens. Otherwise, I've got too many other things to do, and I just can't really put myself in my own state of mind when I'm sitting in the waiting room with other people. But that's the only time I'll be bored. And I just don't see how people could ever really get bored with a very long life. But then you say, well, the, you know, there's you only so many books to read. We write them faster than you could possibly read them. And even if we increased your, your native intelligence so you could read faster, then everybody else is just writing stuff faster. So it is one of those things where the options for depth and complexity of stories, I think, is one of those ways that we'll see this moving forward. Because, yes, everyone wants an original walk, but because there's so many potential storylines out there nowadays that you can start seeing these kind of shared universe things that will be kind of the more the big one for people to join because you can have one universe someone's read up on rather than going to 10 different book settings, and there's a huge collection of work for them to explore. So they never really get bored of the place. It's interesting to think about that because with life extension, which we've talked about extensively before, but with that, you know, we get into ideas of generational asteroid ships, mm -hmm. you know, going to other star systems, you know, by crossing space-time very slowly. And that's where boredom comes in, because when you've got like a megastructure like that, that you have the resources of a city, then you are eventually going to, number one, lose contact with Earth. So any any new art after 200 years is going to have to be internal. But at the same time, with AI going where it's going, being able to begin to write things, but say it got much better, then it could write you as much as you wanted. It could, and, and the other people on board could, too. Now, I'm not sure you would really lose contact with Earth. I think it might be one of those things where they're not willing to send you the stuff for free as much anymore, but you still have some. Because you, you, you're losing on that ship, but every so often you're going to be able to drop a satellite behind, and by whatever means it's got, maybe it's got a radioisotope generator. It doesn't have to be that strong to pick the signal up and relay it on. I think that's one of your options that's available to just make sure you keep in contact. But... The sheer amount of stuff. I mean, how do you possibly run out of material other than, you know, you're not getting the newest updates of computer games, but I still play like Civ 4 on my computer, you know, or, or Railroads games, things like that. I could have probably spent the rest of my life playing old 90s Nintendo games and not gotten bored of them. That's all I had. And I think that anyone on those ships is going to have such a stockpile of resources available to them at the time they leave that they should never really have a chance to get bored on that trip. But it is one of those key things is 
the reason why you can do that is unless you're freezing people, you have to send an entire civilization along to make a go of it because it'd be a civilization the whole way. And that means you need to build these big ships. And, you know, the, these big ships all in themselves effectively a community that someone's just strapped an engine onto. You know, it is a city on the go plus its suburbs. And that, for most of human history, that would have been a completely self-contained kingdom that people never really left around the borders of. You might have some occasional visitors who showed up by, uh, you know, popping through to sell something of a trade. But otherwise, that 10-mile area was the whole of where you lived your whole life, and that was it. And the analogy for that would be, well, that's when you get the occasional signals from back home. Or maybe, as things develop a bit more, that's when you get the message from the other ship that's passing somewhere nearby that sends you their data dump from one light year away. And for, like, that year, it's like, wow, these are all new friends. And we can actually communicate with them. It only takes a year for a message to get back and forth. You know, that, that still is a potentially huge amount of new information, new art, new new data, new things to pay attention to. And that's all assuming that just on board that ship, you'd never actually be able to get bored. Because in a post-scarcity civilization, it's not like people had time for creative walks. Well, that's the other thing, too, is that you may not have all that much to do on an almost fully automated asteroid ship and that you, you're going to spend your time that way. But freezing is a problem because you eventually... <laughs> deal with things like you're going to have to have nanotechnology to repair yeah. a frozen body. You know, I think I worked out it was 3,000 years to hit a lethal radiation dose from your own potassium. But I mean, you can get around that, for instance, is that uh, you uh, you could you know, purify what was going to people's system so it didn't include any radioisotopes for a few months before they left. And most of their, uh, most of their cells would have changed over the material by then. You know, Some would be left, but in less amounts. And then, you know, anything involving freezing, you need nanotech, but it's basically the same technology that lets you unfreeze someone, lets you extend their life indefinitely anyway. So, hey, here's technology that can bring you back from the dead. Great. We already have technology that keeps you from ever being dead because it was slightly simpler. Resurrection is, is, is harder than maintenance, you know? <laughs> well, that, that leads to an interesting proposition because if you have nanotechnology that can repair your cells like that, then you probably have conquered aging and you've probably conquered death. And since you're sealed in an asteroid, as long as it doesn't hit anything, you're, you're probably going to be in good shape. Therefore, you don't need freezing. You can just stay conscious as long as you can keep yourself occupied. And you might be, I mean, this is usually assuming a pretty heavy level of, of nanotech at this point anyway, involving your body. So maybe you do go into that, uh, like, you know, something like a torpor state and uh, you're sleeping the whole time or, or lightly. You can wake up if you want to and you're sleeping on the local hive mind where you all have a shared virtual reality or, you know, depending on what the ship's computer allows, you pretty much all live in these virtual environments while you all run at one tenth of normal speed time because your brain's already pretty hacked up and augmented. So you can make that change and... Yes, they still need to grow food for you to keep you alive or nutrient paste or whatever it's going to be. But, you know, it's less of an effort on, on people's psychology to last that long then. But for my part, I, I still don't, you know, I could spend a, a century on board a ship, I think, especially if my family and friends were there, you know. <laughs> and, I mean, I've had friends when I was a kid that I don't see anymore and I miss them. But you make friends with the people who are there. If you have a community, if you've got your Dunbar's number or a thousand or so people maybe instead, you know, a decent-sized community, how are you getting bored with, with the ability to finally catch up on all those books you want to read, all those movies you want to watch? And then, then because you're going to live a very long time, so you just figure maybe people say, I can only really be sane and, and human by any normal standard of maybe 10,000 years of experiential life, right? So if I frame-jack myself up to experiencing 100 times normal lifespan, after a century, I'm full. Right, so uh, that th we found that people could only live ten thousand subjective years, pointing a number out of nowhere. And at that point, you're just not really human or sane anymore by any normal definition. You've had too much life. Then I could see people freezing themselves or putting themselves in some slowdown state. I don't think very many would choose to stop their continuity, though, because yeah, I, I think that dreaming, yes, but actually, big, like, I'm going to stop. Period for a century. I think most people would be like, no, I'm going to go to sleep and wake up once every year instead. That's what I'd like to do. I think that would be more the norm. You know, I want to exist very slowly in my room, sitting in my easy chair all day, wake up for 10 minutes, and then go back to that state, and then it flies by quickly. I don't think you see many people being like, yeah, put me on ice. And I don't think it would really be necessary either. You know, I, that actually resonates with me because I spend one third of each day in a torpor state, and it does not bother me one bit. I actually enjoy it. And if I only, if I extended that, uh, as long as it was the way it is for me, sleeping is, or 
quasi-sleeping or sitting in the hypnagogic state or all the things that happen to me. I wouldn't mind that at all. That to me is every bit as good of an existence as wakefulness. So, yeah, so. and and it's likely to be a bit different too because yeah, we we talk about living in virtual realities or living in dreamlike slumbers, but there's probably going to be some interesting you know overlays. And you know, if you got hypnagogy, I, I always love that experience. When I first start falling asleep and I see incredibly visible, just amazing and seemingly irrelevant visuals pop in my head. You should be able to replicate things like that with a slightly better understanding of the brain. So you might be able to actually easily have lucid dreaming for, you know, lucid and really controlled dreaming for a day. That sounds like something I wouldn't mind doing, especially if you're conscious enough of it. So you can like, well, I'd like to pass on what appears to be uh, the walking dead. You know, so. Well, I think for me, you know, I, I have abnormally long uh, hypnagogic and hypnopompic states. They're over an hour usually. And part of it is because of uh, anxiety disorder that messes with my sleep. But I don't regret it because, you know, just the hypnagogic hallucinations are absolutely amazing. And you can draw ideas for sci-fi from some of that stuff. And it seems to me that that you're right. That should be one of the most easily doable things that we could do as far as altered consciousness goes on, on long space journeys. And I don't I'm not even sure that you would even know a thousand years past you went into that state and then woke up a thousand years later. I mean, it may, it may totally alter your sense of time. Might drive you nuts too, of course. I think for that long period, but you know, I think this is one of those mistakes we make with science fiction. You think back to like the the nineties when virtual reality was the technology that was in every bit of fiction. You know, we think, well, you got virtual reality and regular reality, and say, like, well, no, that's not really the right way to look at it because you have a augmented reality, layers of augmented reality, the local virtual augmented reality, and then you're going to have things like shared universes. It's not just, oh, I'm going to go live in this one place by myself where I'm the king of the elves or whatever personal thing someone has going on, but you're going to have a whole bunch of those places that you visit, and a lot of them are going to be shared ecosystems where, you know, you get to talk to other people who happen to share your love of Tolkien, so you're all in version 37 of Middle-earth. And But then from there, let's go over it, and today we're crewmen on board the Star Trek Enterprise. And that, that's that's the kind of stuff you would have in those kind of environments. And I think that that represents less of a, I'm going to go live in a fantasy world than I am going to visit a lot of fantasy universes and some that are kind of also real, you know, because it becomes very easy to start putting these kind of augmented reals onto things that would be, you know, I'm going to walk through the day and do my normal job, but also I've got, uh, you know, best you off my phone, e.g. in this case, it's augmented reality, but that level of things I think will be very common in the future. And, and again, just goes at the idea, I cannot imagine getting on board on these things. And, you know, it's not like, yes, it's a spaceship, but it's not a spaceship. It's it's not even really a city. It's it's a nation state on the move in many cases. And it's got its whole ecosystem, including a virtual one, you know. You're going to have so much space on board one of those things that's that's just empty and full of cargo. You're going to have all your resource stuff. You're going to have empty you know, tunnels that will shut down until you need them. And you're going to have all these layers of virtual realities that people hang out in, too. And that's a, you know, that's one of these ships could easily be the equivalent of an entire world just to of its virtual and i don't know how you ever get bored on a trip like that that struck an interesting chord in my writer brain so say we're on the generational asteroid and i don't quite make it i want that to be my epitaph as you guys throw me out the airlock put on the on the capsule he went insane from his own dreaming yeah <laughs> that might be a very common way to die in the future too i suppose it could be it could be now, enabling this, right, and I, this is one of the things I wanted to touch on because we never really have before, is future technologies on the level of megastructures. And the first one that, that always piqued my interest uh, from Arthur C. Clarke's work, actually, was the space elevator. Now, we may differ on this one in that I don't think we'll use space elevators on Earth very much because there's a lot of ins for terrorism and things like that. But I do think it will be something we use on Mars and the moon and things like that. Do you think that an Earth space elevator is in our eh, far future in, in the sense of one to 200 years? Kind of, sort of. One, one of the problems with the space elevator is that it, it's one single long line that, that can only hold its own weight, right? It, you know, only so much, and the weight is a big constraint on that. So imagine you had a fourth out, imagine you had a freeway from one side of, of North America to the other, and it was only allowed to have one or two trains out the entire way, just a couple of semis. That doesn't really allow much throughput. It's very low energy, but it's not a lot of throughput. That's why I tend to feel things more like a space tower or an orbital ring. And you know, for Arthur C. Cloth, the, the example he used in, I want to say, was it 2061 or 3001? But they got 
they got space towers in that one, and they're talking about the space elevators and say, well, that's not a space elevator. I said, well, the space elevator concept originally was a compressive strength and was a really tall tower as opposed to the one hanging down because no one ever thought you'd have a material that could actually hang that weight. And that's where the carbon nanotubes kind of came in in the 90s and said, wait, 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 we could hang this thing instead. But when you're building a space elevator on Earth, you know, there's the hanging kind, you would have to do it at that, that long geostationary drop. Or at least all the tethers had to come to some central geostationary location. You could have three or four of them coming from different locations on the planet that all met up there from different latitudes. But when you're doing something that's a compressive strength one, like a space tower, you could just build that 100 kilometers up and, and launch from space on some ramp that was up there, such as an orbital ring. And you have way more throughput because now your tether is only 100, meters, sorry, 100 kilometers long, which is still pretty long, but it's, it's nothing like 40,000. And so you're moving things up and down that tether, and that gives you much better throughput. And that would be my thought is, regardless of whether or not you ever get a material that can comfortably do a space elevator on or the classic, you know, hanging kind, you're still going to mostly be taking people to low orbit instead only, because that's where you need to get most of your stuff done. And that's the best place to launch from. Going even further, that doesn't really give you that much of a benefit, unless you want to do the whipcord thing off the, uh, the much higher than geosynchronous altitudes. But other plants, yeah, absolutely would be using it. And um, I would say probably the biggest switch around on that that people tend not to think about is just the danger issue, right? We, we avoid one might fall down. Ben Bova, a great writer, but he made a big mistake, in my opinion, in one of his books. He's got the space elevator, and he gets sabotaged. Somebody cuts through it with acid of some kind, and it falls down and wraps around the equator. And so that's, that's not right at all. Now, now Alistair Reynolds did a very good one with the space elevator being blown up properly in Chasm City some years later, but if you've got a tether, it's, it's pulling upwards. If you cut a tether off that's up to space like that, it flies off into space. It doesn't fall down. The part that was below the cut would fall down, but uh, that should only actually matter for like maybe 70 kilometers, and things probably only about as wide as, you know, it might be only as wide as your arm, or maybe it is as wide as a railroad track, but it's only hitting the ground like 100 miles an hour because it's still got terminal velocity. That's not doing a lot of damage, not, not, not wrecking planets. So, And while well, that was probably one of my favorite scenes from um, that Foundation series that, that they had come out on Apple, when they did the elevator drop, it's still it's not, not really quite how that would work out. You can make them very safe. It's just what you can't make them is high throughput because you're trying to take them all the way up to geosynchronous orbit when you really don't need to get there. All right, it is the bottom of the hour, and we have to take a break. We'll be back in a minute for more talk about alien and human megastructures. Well, that was a good discussion. I'll go make some more coffee. Excellent. I could use another cup. Well, hello, Professor. How is your research progressing? Yes, John is an unusual specimen. He's the only person I've ever known that had a car leave him. He didn't sell it, it sat down on its own. The LeBaron did not leave me. That's an internet rumor. It was uplifted by an alien civilization like V'ger from the first Star Trek movie, which was really hard to explain to the insurance company. I had a LeBaron. Best car I ever owned. They don't make them like they used to, do they? That's for sure. Yeah, get back to work. And we're back with Isaac Arthur. Now, Isaac, another megastructure. And this is one of my favorites. And that is, well, actually, I'm going to change this. The idea of mitigating something like climate change with Earth with a solar shield and what that might entail. Because I like this idea, not so much that we would need to do that, but that these are very easily visible techno signatures going back to Luke Arnold and things like that. When you start blocking light and doing strange things, it's right in my, my own wheelhouse, obviously. My idea here is that this may be the most efficient way for SETI is to build these great structures so that not only can you collect energy from your star and build Battlestar Galactica ships and things like that, but you can also make yourself visible to aliens. Do you think there are downsides to that? Now, is this a form of medi that we might do that maybe we should rethink just because of the sheer size of these these sorts of orbital platforms? So much we could unpack on that one. I mean, the, the biggest and first one is is to understand the culture scale as we talk about, oh, what's a K1 civilization, what's a K2? From the standpoint of, of the original concept from Kharshev, the idea is, 
not that you're a K1 civilization because you use all the power of your planet. It's that you've done something to your planet, power level-wise, as to significantly alter its spectrum. Same for K2. You don't have to be a full-on Dyson Sphere to get there. You could be a Tabby star level of alteration. And you know, you've hit that K2 number. You can obviously start telling you how much power a civilization has, but stars have very variable output anyway, so do planets. You know, this is the says that I've significantly changed what my planet looks like. And say, well, that's a techno signature. I put the solar shades in front of it. I'm blocking 1% of the infrared light coming at the planet. And so nobody even notices, but there's a little bit less light hitting the Earth. And so it cools just a little bit. Great. I love that idea. I think it's one of the best approaches to, to doing climate uh, alteration. Same with if you want to add a little bit in until you need a warmer planet, like we might need to do with Mars. Is that a techno signature? Yes. Is it many? Yes, but not not potently, because if you're dealing with a civilization that has the ability to actually detect that much of a change to a planet, then there's no way they've already missed the biosignature that your planet has. And realistically, it's because it's so much easier to see in one frequency, they're going to have noticed that suddenly this planet started sparking up an awful lot more you know, chatter in the radio bands, and that, that shows up. They don't have to be able to hear what it says. You know, compressed signal is basically trying to remove the pattern, so you're not going to know what people said, but you still know someone was sending it. There's an unnatural amount of information, loudness, brightness in that frequency, and you say, that that's not natural, that's a techno central. And so even if somehow they've missed that your planet had biosignatures, now you have that techno central in place, so what difference does it make that you put shoulder shades up? It just says, well, they're spacefaring. And it kind of goes back to the idea is, do you need Medi to have detected that planet? Well, who cares if some civilization that could never get to you knows you're there? There's not much they could do about that. We only care if they could send an armada full of battleships or something like uh, that would do the same effect, like a self-replicating nano-killbot that arrives as a little pencil-sized object and then turns into a bunch of battleships. Those are options that say, you know what I could also send was one space probe to check your planet out. So when you saw that this planet had biosignatures a million years ago, or however it is that you appeared on the scene maybe 10,000 years ago, you saw those biosignatures, you sent a probe. Because if you can send an armada, you can send a probe. And so you did. Otherwise, you're not a threat, so it doesn't matter. That's why I don't tend to worry too much about Medi. But, you know, the mega structures are what we're looking for when we do Dysonian SETI. We do, you know, the any Kardashev scale kind of SETI. We say we're not going to look for radio signals. We're going to look for all the proof of the civilization existing by the stuff that they will do. And so we get that regular refrain of, well, what if they don't build Dyson spheres? I said, well, we're not talking about fully engulfing your sun. What if they decide they want to do mega-scale engineering? Because that's what leaves that mark behind. That's what makes you a loud alien is, do you do things that alter the area of space that you've occupied, whether it's your planetary system or half the galaxy? Do you do things that alter that thing so as to make it detectable? And that's a moving goalpost since we get better at looking and seeing things all the time. So what qualifies, obviously, you've got to change as we get better at looking into space. But at the same time, certain things are too obvious to build. Maybe you don't want to tinker with your planet's sunlight in any way, but then you'd still want to have that capacity there in case a volcano came out. So you might have a whole bunch of solar panels just sitting there waiting to go to suddenly shift light onto whatever area just got slammed by a volcanic blast or... To reduce the amount of light coming in for, you know, the solar flare that just came by and warmed the planet up a bit. The capacity is what you're going to really want. And so they're going to have it. If they have the ability to do these things, they will do them because there's no reason not to. And tons of reasons to want to. And those become your techno signatures. So, in the end, you really can't avoid being seen. And there's, and there's really not a lot of reason why you would want to try. In regards to engineering Earth, once again, though... Let's take a different type of mega engineering project. Ending volcanism on this planet. Do you think that we ever have a chance of being able to mitigate exploding mountains on Earth? I think we could probably blow them up in advance. Um, you know, when you get to be really good at that kind of level of engineering, it starts getting to the idea that I can also go mine that area. At what point does your plant stop being kind of natural? Like, at what point do you do more canal digging and fjord, uh, not fjord building, dike building around your coast than letting nature erode these things in place? At that point, it's probably when you're starting to look at any volcanism on your planet. But I tend to think about like all the all the plants out there that might have actually eroded themselves down and had their volcanism in naturally already. In a long enough period of time, you know, volcanoes go away. If a plant gets old enough, they're gone. 
if you don't have a big moon, we don't, we don't really know what the moon does tectonically yet, but we know it, it's involved. You have a smaller moon, you don't have that kind of level of tectonics. It's possible those four or five billion year old planets have already lost their volcanism by then, and there's just very little of it going on. But that would be a fate of any really long-term planet, and they kind of rolled away into some big flat plane. When you're at the point where you don't need that anymore, that's when you start trying to look at some way to end the volcanic activity on a planet, and then you can do it. You think about it, when you get around to it, you can lift entire sections of your planetary crust off if you want to engage enough engineering. You build some really thick orbital rings around the planet, and you just cut them out and tow them up into the air a little bit and put down some layer or something underneath this form vent, and now your volcanoes are gone. It is doable. Whether or not you'd ever want to do it, it, it kind of just depends on how big you're getting. And say the idea in the past of Tony Riverside to make some giant dam and, and dam lake like we do nowadays would seem insane to a Neolithic tribe. And say, well, even if you could do that, why would you? But, you know, if you're talking about trying to make a multi layered planet that's got stacked after stacked layer of Matrioska shell around it, then it doesn't get that hard to see why you would want to do that. Where you have hundreds of levels of some uh, tailored train built on top of Earth and endless Matrioska shells, then yes, then you want to get rid of that. And. As to doing it, there's a lot of ways you really could. You had to basically just replace sections of the crust piece by piece with something that was you know, tailor-made as opposed to a bunch of crunky rock. The galactic-scale zombie apocalypse, and here we go again. Back to this. And the idea is actually applicable not to just a planet that might have nanotechnology gone wrong or whatever that you could use to explain a zombie apocalypse, but... It gets much worse when you get out into the universe. And this gets into things like berserkers and von Neumann probes. And those can corrupt and go wrong and end up not fulfilling their original purpose and degrading over time and all these other questions and creating monsters, AI monsters in the galaxy that might be sitting out there waiting for us, you know, like vipers. <laughs> and then once we, once we do interact with them, they don't act normal because they're corrupted and I don't know. 30 million years old and things like that. Do you see that as a, a, a possible solution to the frame paradox is that it's it's a galaxy of insane AI? <laughs> that- oh, I love it as a solution. And was it uh, uh, Fred Seabrook? His uh, Bazooka novel was all, a couple of very early on. And so people will say, well, have you read this new book by X? It's like, well, I haven't read that new book by X, but I read Fred Seabrook when we talked about it 50 years ago. So uh, <laughs> it's... It's same basic concept that you see there is if we went ahead and let some intelligence that we've made out to go fight our wars or tail from our planets, have we let the genie out of the bottle who's going to go remake the entire galaxy into uh, you know, a dark zombie apocalypse kind of situation, which it is a very similar genre um, in terms of the flavor of that. I'd say the kind of same thing applies if you send out your normal descendants too, because back here on Earth, you're probably getting all hyper-technological and enlightened or whatever you're doing, you know, as, as we get more post-scarcity, whereas your colonies have been sent out all basically your discarded mutant ancestors running around in space now, you know, a thousand years removed or ten thousand years removed, all divulging from each other and probably with a lot less actual resources and maybe they haven't been doing all the upgrades, but many of them might be falling back on technologies they've hoarded and didn't fully master and let loose some kind of crazy bazooka plague. You start colonizing space, you, you never really move your you don't really transplant your civilization you transplant a seed of your civilization to go grow completely differently and so you surround yourself on a thousand worlds with neighbors who are probably no more like you than any single country on this planet that's the most different from us would be you know it's not going to be too much like you that those folks are and you're changing too of course so whether or not you could actually have something that's just running loose that was just crazy and kind of stupid like we think of gray goo or like we think of berserker probes that I'm a little bit less worried about in the sense that I don't think you'd have a problem fighting those things that much. You know, we could say, well, it's a very good self-replicator. I was like, well, okay, so we'll make another self-replicator that is specifically designed to kill that self-replicator. That, that should probably be doable. What you're really worried about is something else that's intelligent and potentially smarter than you that can grow and repair and fix itself so much faster and, and is very, uh, very focused on just one task, paperclip maximizer style. And I think that... Uh, I think that will be a concern for any civilization going out in space, but I also think it's the kind of thing they, they'd most focus on making sure it did not happen. Because, you know, that is something you can protect against. Say, well, what happens if I send a bazooka pro- you know, I send a von Neumann probe out and it turns into a bazooka by mutation? Say, well, how did it mutate? You know, it, it's only things with intelligence can really mutate out in space unless you want them to. And here's the key thing is, 
all DNA has to mutate because of, of its kind of natural existence. It would not function if it was not subject. You know, it's never going to pursue ultra low mutation pathways. If your DNA cannot change over time, then it stagnates. And only the ones that are still prone to mutation are going to continue to mutate and improve. So you never really breed mutation out of a, a DNA-based civilization or any other Darwinistic-based civilization. But when you're building probes, you can set something up to be insanely proof against mutation. You can set it up so like, well, it takes 20 of these little machines to come together and they have to some, you know, check some and, and compare all the information. And only if 17 of them have the identical data will they replicate one and they'll immediately kill those other three mutants off or at it too. And so there's no replication. The chance of mutation occurring even once for a gajillion of them in the galaxy over the course of the entire universe's history is less than one in a trillion. That's as low as the odds you're going to get, right? That is doable with machines. Even with the current kind of computer programming that we have, we could prevent them from ever mutating. But you can't do that with intelligence. When it gets smart, that's the problem. Because you'll say something, well, I want you to make me the perfect paperclip. So you'd say, well, now it wants to build paperclips. And everyone knows the paperclip maximizer, but they don't really think about some of the secondary effects. I made this thing smart enough to reason. And I said, maximize paperclips. And now I've got one separated by light lag, and you know, one off at Alpha Centauri, and one off at Tau Ceti, and one off at you know, Epsilon Indy. And they're all saying, well, how do I maximize paperclip production? And one says, I've thought about this, and I believe the best way to maximize paperclip production is by quantity. And so it focuses on trying to make microscopic-sized paperclips. Another says, quality has a quality of its own, and so it, it builds to really big paperclips made only out of uh, platinum. Another says, well, you know, the paperclip shape is what matters, and, and the, most of the matter in the universe that we can find is going to be like frozen water and methane, so we're going to build frozen paperclips. They don't need to be metal. And another says, well, it's really more what binds together papers. So a staple walk, too. And another says, you know, mutant that take off on its own side course, a picture of a staple of a paperclip is just as good. So I'm going to make a digital copy of a billion paperclips. And then maybe one of those says, well, the only way I could ever really make a good paperclip is one that holds together human papers. So only by building giant human civilizations can I, I actually have true paperclips, because they're only a paperclip if it's doing the job that's intended for, holding together human papers. And each of these gets conflicting purposes and different goals, and so they, they are not going to do what we think they will. But on that same rationale, each of these things, when it's told this goal, has to think about it and come up with a new goal, a new way of you know figuring out what it's going to do. And so you don't get the expected effects right away, because they are trying to find solutions. And that means they have to be able to make decisions and change themselves, and that means they can intellectually mutate. And so, so long as you're not actually sending out intelligent creatures to space to try to terraform the galaxy, I don't think you have to worry about berserkers of that nature. Only when you got intelligence does it become a threat. And with intelligence, it comes a value of scarcity. So you end up with a machine that makes one paperclip and ensures that no other paperclips are ever made. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, or you have one that says, I'm going to devote all my attention to finding out whether or not the universe is, you know, an infinite loop kind of thing or, or, or just always spreading out. Because if it turns out that the you know, universe is infinite in size and length, then I don't need to make any paperclips because there will be an infinite number of paperclips. And now I'm going on vacation. Because I've solved it, I've maximized paperclip production. First, first SETI message you receive is a digitized representation of a paperclip. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, I would take that as like a sign, um, you know, that, that they were at that point trolling us. You know, there was that question like, what, what should the first message to an alien civilization look like? And say, so, well, I would send a pattern if I was saying to us that was repeating twenty four three sixty five as a number because at that point it's not just like a you know a signal saying, look, that the doing uh, showing you. One four nine sixteen, or you know three point one four, any other sequence of numbers that should be universal. Yes, you include those, so they 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 have some way of translating you. Instead, though, when you send someone a message like that, they don't know if they should reply. But when you send someone something that says twenty four three sixty five, they know that's aimed right at your planet. You're you're not like shouting in the dark forest asking people if they really want to come and reply. You're tapping on their dining room window while you can see them at the table. And so, they, you know, they, you know, well, we might as well say hi. We can't pretend they don't see us. They, they know we're here. <laughs> this is sort of a cottage industry, though, of coming up with, number one, ways you could try to communicate and make yourself understood, but also in that what frequency to <laughs> send out yet. And for me, it, it is no wonder that Radio Study hasn't found a convincing candidate yet. Well, well they do have candidates. 
but they haven't found a convincing one yet because I don't think it's really well said, and, and this includes me, that looking for this stuff is really, really hard. And, and if we ever find it, decoding it is going to be much, much harder. There are no guarantees there. What do you think? I mean, do you think that, do you think, let me phrase it this way. Do you think we would miss an alien signal even if we saw it? Yes, with a couple of caveats. I mean, the first one is I never like to criticize any study method too specifically because my own belief is they're not going to hear anything because there's nothing to behold. And so you know, if, if we don't know what method people use because they can't hear us because they don't exist, it's not going to come up. But the other flip side of that is there's a huge difference between trying to listen for a random alien signal and trying to listen for like an intentional beacon message. Like the one I just described is you're just sending that message out not just because you want them to be able to clearly easily understand it, but also because you want them to know that you know they are there. This is not an obdirectional signal. This is a beam at that planet with their specific day length and year length in there or something like that, right? And uh, by putting that 365 in there over and over again, they know that you've got their number, you've got their address. And those messages are very different because those are the ones where you'd expect the header to be something like pi or, or you know, a specific mathematical data progression. And for those, I don't think decoding them would be hard at all because they just spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to make it very easy to read and, and make it very easy to unpack. And the biggest way you do that is to just blast blatant amounts of like raw data at people that they can pick up because the trick about a real Rosetta Stone is that we can't interpret messages from it on some 5,000-year-old tablet because we have like three of the damn tablets. And so those three tablets are not enough information to tell us about that civilization and its language where it's basically a hundred words written in one place and then some other place miles and miles away that in a time without dictionaries and, you know, an entire generation later. If they send the equivalent of several trillion bytes of data at us, that gives us something to break the message on if they're trying to be seen. Now, the flip side of that is that you don't send a trillion data bytes to somebody as a normal message in a civilization because you compress that signal that would have been a trillion bytes down to like a megabyte because it's so much repeating data. And any compressed signal, the whole point of compression is to remove patterns so it looks like noise. Now, it doesn't look exactly like noise. That's not quite how compression works. You can still see patterns in it, but they're very minimal and hard to see. It, so it doesn't look like it's completely encrypted, but they might encrypt their messages too. And then you're never going to pick that out. You don't pick out signals from anyone who's trying to keep their signals secret or who's trying to broadcast them for any purpose other than speaking directly to you. Because you, you go for the minimum power usage and you go for the maximum compression. And so if you're trying to talk to a neighboring solar system or just a neighboring planet, your signal is very weak compared to what it would be for us to hear it clearly here especially because you're sending to someone who's got more technology than we have now. So they probably have better receivers. They probably have better, you know, uh, compression. And they're probably much better at actually handling that. So, no, you're not going to see anything. We will never pick up a clear signal from an alien unless they're either sending it to us or it's something really intentionally simplistic like a galactic positioning system where it just belches out the same clear, loud number over and over again. And that could be, you know, like neutron stars, right? You can heal that at any distance. They might be that they set up a big galactic positioning system that's just statite mirrors hanging over a bunch of stars and belching out the current time. You know, here I am, there's where I am, this is my ID number, and this is the time. And that's how you know where you are on a spaceship down to a few meters, even while you're moving at relativistic speeds over light years. That you would probably be able to see. We don't see that, so it probably does not exist. Or they might not have built it. You know, you might not bother building something like that. But we're never going to pick up random transmissions that they'll just like talk you inside a solar system. For one thing, they'll probably tight beam to save power. Well, the other problem is that if you're you're looking at the internal communications of an alien civilization, they're going to use just only the energy they need to do you know to accomplish that. And because of inverse square law and everything like that, it is very unlikely that we would see that, and it's very unlikely that anyone has seen our transmissions. Maybe. It's not just a power consumption thing, either. It's 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 if you have a civilization that's very occupied and it's going to be and it's interplanetary, there are signals all over the place, and so everyone tries to keep their their volume to the minimum so that they're not flooding it. You know, with you have a limited amount of of bandwidth, as it were, and if everyone's using maximum volume as they communicate and omnidirectional signals, you're not getting much information transmitted. But, well, that's the AM radio problem, you know, going above 50,000 watts and going clear channel at night, 
you're capped at a hundred thousand or else you're going to flood everything. And it, this is al- already something that we deal with in radio and, and have regulated. And you start moving up something like a K2 civilization, trying to do the signals, you think you're going to see them very easily. And of course you could see them very easily, but you're seeing them in a different way. You're seeing something that's a star that's putting out a shocking amount of basically white noise across a long sequence of frequencies because they're using every bandwidth they can get away with at basically the maximum amount they can get away with. And then you can see that, but you're not seeing what they're saying. You have no idea what they're saying. Because it's like trying to decode a stadium full of chatter. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a, a what's, you know, I, I can barely hear a stadium at, at like maximum gameplay from miles away. I'm not going to figure out what the people are actually saying to each other. All I'm hearing is the background hum. But sometimes you might get stuff even out of that because there is a distinctive noise a stadium makes when a goal is scored. So there would be like upticks for certain things potentially, like, uh, you know, the daily news or the morning something or other. There might be tiny little patterns you could see in that. So I don't want to say you could never hear any signal out of that or any kind of information out of that of use. Just that it would be very hard to ever listen to a conversation like that, let alone just find it. Uh, on the flip side, if there is a big civilization there, yeah, you, you could tell that they were talking and probably in what frequencies. You just would have no idea what they're saying. That's sort of interesting because there's been recent work in that. And the idea being that you would, uh, if you really want to say hello, piggyback it and coordinate it with a supernova, some celestial event that everybody's going to know about, and there's your signal. So you have a better chance of conquering the when the signal goes out problem. Mm-hmm. But I'm still not sure of that because, and we're both of the same mind here on this, is that the real solution is probably that intelligence is just very, very rare and doesn't often occur at the same time in the same galaxy and things like that, which would not surprise me at all with my idea that we live in a mostly microbial universe. You know, the microbes are out there, but getting to our level doesn't happen very often. It's very situational and is going to be rare. Real complexity. If I thought I was going to do an episode on that one of these days, but the idea that trying to hit that 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 jump from the basic life forms that things were for the first, basically the first three billion years on this planet to when they suddenly exploded, that that was obviously a pretty hard step to make. It was one that was done after photosynthesis, so it's not just a you know limited energy pool from like a pre-photosynthetic era. So it could be a pretty big one. It's hard to say, but it's one of my preferred filters. And again, because I'm not a very late filter person because I don't like the idea that we blow ourselves up. I think this is the big one is you're trying to look at like what would a what would a civilization do for its long-term communications? The idea that you're not just catching them at that, that, just that moment when they're whispering and you can hear. Would a big, long-lasting civilization keep transmitting? And my usual assumption was, yeah, they're going to grab a random star and, and, and you know drop a polar satellite over that thing and blast out 10 to the 18th or 10 to 21 watts of signal from that thing that could hear even another galaxy away. And you could do that, and you could actually hear a signal like that. Uh, people might be very irritated that you're blowing that particular bandwidth galaxy-wide, and that's considerably worth it at that point in time. And I think a civilization like that, because it's not the least bit unified, unless they got FTO, and I, I don't I don't think that would ever happen, they're not really going to be in a position to be like, well, I'm going to use some random star like that for hundreds of thousands or millions of years. The other flip side is, once you've started doing something like that, when you're still curious about the answer to the Fermi Paradox, and you've gone to all these worlds and found the intelligent, is to say, well, there's nothing in this galaxy. We know that, for sure. We're going to start noticing we get anywhere near each other, but we're not going to be the ones handling that. It'll be all fringe colonies who are no more related to us at this point in time than oak tree is, because they've got a billion years of you know, evolutionary divergence at this point. They can handle that problem, and we'll hear from them. In the meantime, I don't have to go looking for aliens, because all of my you know, colonies I've sent off. They're very alien now, and they're surrounding us for thousands of light years all around, and that's billions of different civilizations. And, you know, yes, you might still care about aliens, but I'm going to guess at that point in time you have a pretty good idea what the odds of it all, and you're not really looking for novelty or surprise, because you're really not expecting to find that with other aliens. They've still emerged up the Darwinian ladder, whereas at this point in time, most of your civilizations are more engineered than uh, something that we produce by normal evolution. You've had things that have been much weirder. You know, the Aliens who will be your cousins from your distant daughter colonies are likely to be weirder than the aliens that would pop up naturally in terms of changing motives. And I think that's one of the things we tend to mistake there is evolution is changing things very slowly. True. And it might be completely different. I don't really go buy into convergent evolution except for certain motive goals like growth, things like that. Moving through water. Yeah. 
once you can actually start getting to the point where uh, you can change things around and you don't even have to follow normal physics because you're building life forms around design of living in a virtual reality, for instance, you get some weird changes pretty quickly, I think. And I, I don't know that you'd have that same fascination. This isn't to say they wouldn't be curious about alien life that arose in some other galaxy, but to them it's going to be one of those things they expect to hear about one day, you know, down the grapevine as it passed through like 10,000 different colonies on its way to let you know that it happened by signal. And, you know, so, yes, you might find out about it, but they're probably not going to be all that alien. And by the time you could have a message to them, they'd have had billions of years of interaction with the bits of your colonies that were closer to them. I think it, uh, one of the interesting dark corners of this, this type of thinking, is that, you know, you're right in that we may actually be closer to an alien civilization, a bona fide one, than we are from what comes of our own civilization as we begin to artificially evolve and create custom humans and custom genomes and we start making things that didn't exist in nature at all things that have no natural counterpart that we've built from the ground up so that's where it goes is that the actual true alien comes from your own world as opposed to another world and that you would actually have more kinship with a biological natural alien than you would with what comes from a biotechnologically advanced civilization that you've created yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Now, I, and the idea usually being that AI is such a wider range that any AI you make is, is less like you than an alien would be that arose on a different planet. And I think there's there's some debatability about that, too. But at the same time, there's definitely that bit of truth. Other ones like that, you say, well, what would artificial life be like? I said, well, if you're looking for an example of an artificial intelligence, you just have to find a mirror. There, there's not much more artificial than we are. We are very man-made creatures, regardless of the fact that we have a natural origin. We do not act much like our animal friends. Uh, to the point that even calling us animals is in many ways no more accurate than calling an animal a minimal. There's, there was such a huge difference in behavior. And yes, we have a lot of animal behaviors, obviously. That's, that's, there are things that we do that no animal does in any kind of meaningful sense. And we are very different in how we act as a result. And this is early days of, of deviation off that what, what really 10,000 years tops from when we saw doing the interesting with fire besides you roasting meat over it what well, we can be like in a million years that's a pretty big difference and that's really hard to speak to the minds of that and it kind of goes the idea that the idea of a natural human I would not be surprised if there are baseline humans like me you or me still around in assuming we even count as baseline humans anymore in a million years or even a billion years but we're not going to be the main movers and shake course you know and I don't really know what that stuff would be like. I don't think it would be hostile, particularly, though. That's one upside. The universe doesn't strike me as encouraging hostility. You know, though, if you think about it, along that grain is we are already very unnatural, as you said. And we have things like educational systems, reading, literacy, invention, things like that, that humans 10,000 years ago during an ice age, or a little bit longer than that, didn't have any conception of. So we are already a very augmented an unnatural species for this world. We are already the aliens walking upon it. Yes. And it's that's where this is going to go, I think, you know, that, that we're going to create something more alien than any alien ever could be. I think that's a very right way of looking at it. And um, in some ways, it would be an interesting journey, although I'm not sure that I'd like to make that, that trip myself. I do, you know, the, the future is an exciting place to me, but it's a future with humans in it. And I think that's... I'd be happy to keep living for as long as it comes up, but I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that I'd really want to make the transition to something superhuman myself like that. And uh, you know, again, it's hard to say because it's likely to be gradual. You ask them, "Well, when when do you become a cyborg?" And I say, "Well, by strict, accurate way of looking at it, I think the only meaningful definition of a cyborg is someone's got a lot more metal bits on them than we have nowadays. We have tooth fillings, uh, you know, and we've have already things like cochlear implants and other changes that people even." You know, I think you and I are both old enough to remember when people still wondered whether a pacemaker made you somehow non-human anymore, or a prosthetic hand. And you have um, movies where it was like a horror movie where, oh, you had a, 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 a hand transplant from uh, uh, you know a donor, and it turned out he was a death row inmate, and so now that hand's going to take over. And you know, in the context of time, it, it, it was something people kind of took semi-seriously. At least nowadays, it seems absurd. And I think it's kind of the same thing we'll see with a lot of cybernetics and slow, gradual changes to people. Is there's not going to be some day when superhumans or technological singularities wake up and take over the planet. It's going to be one of those days where we just kind of wake up and say, "Wow, 
you know, you know we, we took uh, not Walt Disney because he's not actually frozen, but some of the person who was frozen on ice and we wake them up and they say, welcome, you know, human to the 27th century. And they say, wow, you guys are freaks and terrified to me. Put me back on ice. <laughs> I don't want to wake up you. We become the zombie apocalypse. So we are the zombies at that point. I do actually along those lines. Of, I remember my, my grandfather has been gone for a very, very long time, but he, he lived to be 89, but he's been gone since the very early 2000s. He was an early recipient of a pacemaker in the 1970s, and he was absolutely terrified of getting near a microwave oven <laughs> so that yeah. just in case it would shut it off. <laughs> no, I think uh, it is. The, the, these generational changes are some piece of technology that uh, to us is strange and alien. And, and it's in that context of saying, well, if you walk up Bacaraggio style in the 25th century, 27th century, and say, well, welcome to the future, and say, oh, uh, so what, what's it like living here in the 25th century when you were born here? Say, oh, I wasn't born then. I was born in the 24th century. I've just been around that long. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not your great, 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 great grandson, so I'm just your, your grandson. And boy, <laughs> it's like, oh. Good God, you're Timmy. Yeah, yeah. yes, I've grown up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh, and that would have to be interesting times to live in. <laughs> we definitely do. But I I wouldn't choose any other time to live in, though. Would you? No, well, no, because well, I wouldn't mind visiting other places. And you know, one thing I've noticed about people who tend to like science fiction and fantasy and history is it tends to come together. You'll find that most people who are really big history buffs or sci-fi buffs are usually history buffs, too, to some degree. The idea of wanting to live in another time or visit another time is appealing. The idea of actually living there, though, especially as you know more about it, says this is this would not be right for me. I'm I'm content to walk into the future as far forward as life extension will allow me to, but I'm not. I don't want to jump to it. And and the same for I don't really want to live in a past era. I wouldn't mind visiting it. I think we'll probably live long enough to get to have virtual awards of these places and go back and visit these places. I think a lot of times what we'll find is that kind of like with space hotel, you like zero gravity for the first day, and then you're going to turn out you want gravity back, and you say, well, I love visiting the Elizabethan era, but I, I really miss having bathrooms, and I really miss when I I, I didn't want to quiver and run away from everyone I met because I thought they were crazy, and I think that we'll see the same with. Uh, you know, with a lot of virtual simulations at the time, but you know, we're never going to have a time machine, so we never get to go back and live in the 14th century. But I don't want to jump ahead to the 28th century. And kind of going back to the the um, space arcs and living at a slower speed, I you know, being frozen for the journey, I wouldn't want to do that to like move from here to Alpha Centauri and back again just to jump leapfrog forward in time. I'd rather experience that time and and not get shocked and wake up one day and realize that. It was, you know, 1920 when I left, and we just uh, banned alcohol and then wake up today and uh, be like uh, waking up into the COVID period a century later and trying to look around society and say, smartphone? Uh, yeah, there wasn't even dials on the phone when I left. You know, it's, it's such a different thing. I don't want to be shocked by that. I want you to live through that period and enjoy it. And I think that we are built by the generation we're in, the time we're in. This is the only time I'm ever really, really comfortable in is my own, the ones I've lived through. So I don't think I'd want to jump ahead. This is the time that I am from. This is me. And if I was to go to another time, I don't think I'd fit in there quite right. I think that was my actual reaction, even in our time, was I, I saw this device and I'm like, smartphone. And I avoided it as, as much as I could for as long as I could. I Obviously, many years ago, I had to give that up. But for somebody that spends all his time thinking about the advancement of technology and you know, alien super civilizations. I am not an early adopter. How about you? Well, no, you're not uncommon that regard either. I, one of the things I noticed, I thought it was an anomaly for me, is I have a lot of, uh, almost all my note-taking is done on paper instead of on the computer. And uh, when I do write notes at all, at least, and I have all these old, like, handmade paper books that I like to write in with the full leather covers. And because they look old and classic, and I usually do my office and a lot of books that I really don't read anymore. They're, they're mostly to give me sound insulation. Because... I think what it is is when you spend that much time in the future, you kind of like to ground yourself in in now. And a lot of folks I know who tend to be on the you know high tech or futurist side in terms of their day to day life do like to be able to get off the train. You know, you, you want to get off the tech train at some point. Oh, yes. I think to some degree, everyone's going to have certain technologies they're comfortable with or not comfortable with that they they take out of their lives when they don't really want them. You say, I don't really need this new thing. You know, the robot vacuum cleaner might be very normal to a lot of us. Other people would say, I don't want that in my life. And they might change their mind later on as they get more comfortable. I was a very slow adopter of, of smartphones myself. 
uh, why? Because I could say, well, what do you could do on this computer? See what I can do on my phone? It's like, I can do that 10 times better on my, my computer, which actually costs less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, then you have to start actually moving around for some reason to walk while you're, you're on travel, things like that. And it's nice to actually have the smartphone that's so much lighter than the laptop. But it is, it's, it's a changing thing. You know, at some point, we're going to have the augmented reality eye lenses or augmentations. And then people are like, well, a smartphone. Why on earth would I want something I have to carry around and charge? Yeah. So <laughs> that well, that was part that was it. And then also, like you said, is that we had desktop computers, which I mean, you know, I was fast to those too. And I still to this day love my yellow legal pads and my pencils that, that I've used since the eighties. Yeah, my hand is currently resting on a little blue one next to a yellow one because my daughter was stealing all my yellow legal pads I have on the desk for casual note taking. And I started getting multicolored ones because I came a pack of blue, pink, and purple, and I gave her the pink and purple ones. Here you go. So she stopped using mine up really quick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Although, to her credit, and she's only six, so I take this as a good sign. When she was sealing my legal pads to make notes and, and random scrolls on them, a lot of which were like, I love you, daddy things, so I'm not going to complain. She always take the ones that had my writing on them and put them in my inbox. Oh, nice. <laughs> 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 Wonderful. All right, Isaac, we are out of time. As usual, it has been fun, and we will do this again uh, before the, at the before next year. Yes. <laughs> before before a, an entire year passes. And I wish you good luck, and I can't wait for more content from your channel. Absolutely. Thank you, Sam Young and John. It's always fun. <laughs>